Here this morning for both sessions is David Robinson. He's pastor of Grace Bible Church in Cambridge, Ontario. That's west of Toronto. Uh, he's pastor of a very vibrant uh, and growing Sovereign Grace Church in that part of Ontario and growing to the point where God has blessed them with the mission to plant a church. And so we're excited about David's ministry there. We're glad he's here. We've had fellowship for a number of years and we're rejoicing at the opportunity to hear him this morning. His two messages this morning will be on preaching sovereignty in the Old Testament. So, David? I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. While you're turning, I do want to uh, I want to uh, greet you from uh, Grace Bible Church in Canada. Uh, we are thankful uh, to uh, come down, or I'm thankful to come down and fellowship and hear God's word and hear of uh, what's taking place uh, down in uh, the states. Uh, we are <clears throat> thankful in Canada that uh, God continues to move uh, despite challenges. Um, and I was thinking as I looked at the schedule, uh, being on the Wednesday, this is uh, the time when our minds begin to uh, think about going back. And uh, it may be difficult for some to go back uh, with some of the challenges. So uh, what I want to do this morning is to uh, look at two passages and uh, seek to just be an encouragement to pastors uh, and their wives and church leaders, uh, knowing that um, it's good uh, to go back despite some of the difficulties that uh, may be facing you. Um, because our God is sovereign and our God reigns and our God rules. Uh, I love the Old Testament because uh, it already captivates us with a story um, and how God works. Uh, and one of the remarkable things as we read, and that's why when we read Second Chronicles 20, I just want to read up to verse 19. Uh, they didn't know the rest of the story. Uh, they didn't know verse 30. Uh, they didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and we may not know what's going to happen, uh, but we know that God, uh, God's love endures forever. <clears throat> So, uh, I just want to read 2 Chronicles chapter 20, or read verses uh, 1 through 19. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Munites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar. That is, in getting. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. 
power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Or God, did not you drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, and descendant of Asaph. And he stood in the assembly. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight the battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshipped before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Sovereignty of God leads us to prayer. What do we do in ministry? What do we do in life? Uh, How do we speak to those to whom we minister who are overwhelmed? Uh, Our next session, we're going to be look at we're going to look at uh, those who stand in need of courage. This is when we're overwhelmed. Packer, uh, J.I. Packer, in his book *Knowing God*, speaks about two challenges of preaching the sovereignty of God or more particularly, the majesty of God. He says, first of all, we naturally have small thoughts of God. It's going to be the first challenge. He says, one of the reasons I hold, or one of the reasons I hold sovereignty as such a controversial matter is because we like the throne, um, but God sits on the throne. Uh, We like to have high thoughts of ourselves and small thoughts of God. Packer will write about why our faith is so feeble and our worship is so flabby. He says, we modern people, though we are, uh, we, we are modern people, and modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have as a, 
as a rule, small thoughts of God. He says, interestingly, secondly, the reason why it's such a challenge to preach the sovereignty of God is not because we have small thoughts, not only because we have small thoughts of God, but also because there is this stress that's laid on the personal God. Again, Packer says, like us, he is personal. Unlike us, he is great. Like us, he is personal. Unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people and on the gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, patience, and yearning compassion that he shows towards the believer, the Bible never loses sight of his majesty and his unlimited dominion over all his creatures. That's the balance not only of preaching, not only the balance of the word, but the balance of life. How is God a personal God, and yet he remains, his, he remains sovereign? He reigns over all. In Bray's God is Love, a biblical and systematic theology, Bray speaks about the sovereignty of God being connected with creation. And the two words which are closely linked are, first of all, lordship. We are subordinate to God who reigns, he establishes, he maintains, he can remove or destroy without being restrained or hindered. God is free within his character to do as he pleases. Not only is he Lord, but he is also omnipotent or almighty. It is not simply that God is capable of doing whatever he wants to or cannot be hindered in this way by any other power in the universe, but that he controls everything and rules his world directly. He is a great God. It is this sense of the greatness of God that Jehoshaphat carries with him and allows him to pray the way that he prays. Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20 is found in a, in a very overwhelming circumstance. And what we want to do this morning is take a look at how King Jehoshaphat, you know, King Jehoshaphat, he's an interesting king. Uh, he he shows a strength here that is remarkable, uh, but then there, and we'll see this in the second session, uh, he also compromises with King Ahab. Uh, he, he lines himself, your horses are my horses, your people are my people, uh, let's go into battle together. Um, he wasn't a perfect king, uh, but here he stands. How did Jehoshaphat respond to a time when things were overwhelming? First of all, we see the circumstances. If you uh, look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 2, uh, 1 and 2, there are the Moabites, there are the Ammonites, there are the Munites, and they're going to make war on Jehoshaphat. Now, what's interesting, if we describe uh, it in three ways, first of all, it is a vast army. Um, this is like Canada uh, lining up at the border of the states, and we're ready to attack, and the states... Uh, you know, we're what, 33 million people in Canada? Uh, there, there's this vast army to the south of us. Uh, there is this vast army that Jehoshaphat all of a sudden sees at his door. It is not only vast, but we read that it is imminent. It is on the other side of the sea. So you have this vast army that's very close and not only do you have this vast army that's very close, in verse 3, Jehoshaphat understands the circumstances very clearly. He's, he has this insight, and therefore we read in verse 3, he, he's alarmed. <laughs> he is, 
Here's this vast army. He wakes up one. This vast army is almost is right next door to him. And they're not, they're not friendly. They're coming after him. They're coming after his people. He is under attack. And Jehoshaphat is alarmed. Imminent, a vast army, and the enemy has come to destroy. Therefore, he is alarmed. I will probably, I, I, I think I'm right in this to say that this, these three circumstances can often be described how people live their lives. And sometimes how ministry is carried out in the church. Because we do see this vast opposition. And we actually see this growing opposition. And even beyond that, we see it, it's, it's imminent. It's closer. Some of the things that uh, the United States is dealing with, Canada's, we, we're beyond that. And I'm not saying we've lost because Jesus reigns. Our circumstances have just changed. It, it's imminent. And sometimes what happens from a vast and imminent, vast and imminent opposition is there's this alarm that takes place. Sometimes when the alarm takes place, some of the language, some of the panic heightens. You see this in people's lives when uh, they're going through a very difficult time. Something dramatic has changed and they, they become alarmed. When they become alarmed, everything's heightened. Everything's ratcheted up a notch. What does Jehoshaphat resolve to do? What does Jehoshaphat resolve to do? He resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. Isn't that astounding? (laughs) If it is imminent, then what do you do as a king? You you have to organize everything. You You have to get your army ready. There are things to be done. What's interesting is Jehoshaphat doesn't go that direction. He says, I am going to resolve to inquire of the Lord. We're going to proclaim a fast, and the people are going to come together, and we're going to seek him. Jehoshaphat responds in four ways. The first way is that he resolves to seek the Lord with the people of God, and we find this in verses 4 through 13. Jehoshaphat stands up in verse 5 and he begins to pray. Now remember, it's the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Munites. And Jehoshaphat's first words in in his prayer are found in the middle of verse 5, or verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? When you begin to pray like that, how big does that army look now? That vast army before the, before the throne of God, what does that army look like? All of a sudden, the vastness disappears. 
if God is the God who rules over all the kingdoms of the nations, if power and might are in his hand and no one can withstand God, then what does that nation, what do those nations look like now? Before the, before the throne room of God. Are you not the God who is in heaven? You know this when you're, you're, you're speaking with people who are going through very difficult times. One of, the, one of the most difficult things to do in pastoral counseling is to be able to say to people, do you, do you know that God sits on the throne? And that he is a big God? And that he is, he is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine? Remember when, I thought I'd better add my Abraham reference this morning, but uh, Abraham uh, is told that he's going to have a child. (laughs) Can you imagine? 90-something years old, and you're going to have a child. And, and, And what does Sarah do? Sarah, she just, she laughs. And in a sense, who wouldn't? And then, angel says, is anything too hard for the Lord? This vast, this imminent army, Jehoshaphat's alarmed, is anything too hard for the Lord? And I think honestly, like Kirk was saying last night in some of our honest moments, our response probably is, yeah, it looks a lot bigger. After he speaks about the sovereignty of God, interestingly enough, in verses 7 through 9, he goes to the goodness of God. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Look at the goodness of God. Not only does he reign, but look at his goodness. Didn't you do all of this goodness? Didn't you drive out nations? Verse 8, they have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment, plague, or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. Lord, you will do all of this, such as your goodness, such as your power. Here is the goodness of God. You have cleared out the land. We live in it. We have built a temple. You have been faithful to your promises. God, we look to you. Not only are you a God who's in control, not only are you free to move, not only are you the king of glory, but you are good. Now remember, Jehoshaphat was not in a a position of strength here. He didn't, it's, it's not like he was strong. In some ways, he, he didn't even have a voice in it. All he could do was plead to the sovereignty and to the goodness of God. So he remembers the goodness of God. And then after he remembers the goodness of God, I think in verses 10 through 11, he, he finally gets to the issue. He, he does it probably opposite of the way we can often pray when we're alarmed. When we're alarmed, first and foremost in our mind, 
is the difficulty or the problem or the opposition or what's going on in our lives that's causing us to be alarmed. Jehoshaphat, first of all, prays the sovereignty of God. He reminds himself of the goodness of God. And then he says, almost in verse 10, like this. And, and by the way, now, now, now here are men from Ammon, uh, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade. And uh, they've come to attack us. So we're in a bit of trouble here. Verse 11, see how they're repaying us by coming and driving coming to drive us out of our possession that you gave us as an inheritance. So after the sovereignty comes the goodness, and then with the goodness, he's able to speak to God about his issues. Verse 12 is what I think is, verse 12 and 13 are are kind of those defining moments in Jehoshaphat's prayer and life. Because while we say, God, you are sovereign, and God, you are good, verse 12 is a very difficult part of the verse. Because even though we claim sovereignty, and even though we claim goodness, we want to suggest. It it is very difficult at the end of the prayer not to give God guidance. And just to be able to say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't don't know. But this is all that I have. My eyes are on you. Or God, will you not judge them? Lord, I leave it with you. You're God. You reign. You're good. You understand the history. You understand the circumstances. Will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Ever stand up and you're preaching, and that enters your mind? We have no power. There's, There's nothing here. There's only the weakness of a sinful, saved heart who seeks to, in a sense, put himself out there and be faithful. I have no power. And I'm looking to you, God. You go back to a circumstance that God's called you to minister through. I have no power. I don't have an answer here, Lord. But this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to look, I'm going to look to you. And what makes it so interesting is verse 13. Because in verse 13, they don't move. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. (laughs) They were not going to move until they heard from the Lord. So it's one thing to stand and say, God, sovereign, good, here's everything. I don't know what to do. My eyes are on you. And then it's another thing to just listen and examine scriptures and read his word. Hear from others the counsel of God. How do we develop that 
in us. I think it has to, it, it's a package prayer. It has to, it has to hold itself together. That, that initial question, are you not the God who is in heaven? Right? When Jesus rose from the dead, he received the position of the right hand of God where he reigns and where he rules for his people, for the glory of God. Ephesians 1.22 says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So the fullness of God fills us in everything in every way as Christ sits on the throne where he reigns and he rules ultimately for the good of the people, for the good of his people. And then one day he will return. The God of majesty. And we will see him in his glory and in his splendor. And even though we don't understand all things now, we read in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of God? Or who has been his counselor? God, we don't know what to do. We're not even going to counsel you on this one. Who could counsel God? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Turn with me just for a moment to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I think something similar happens. Sorry, Acts chapter 4. It's a familiar passage. The apostles are starting to get the first wave of opposition. And they're told, don't speak. <laughs> Quiet down. Tone it down. <clears throat> Verse 20, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this day to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand. speak about the sovereignty of God. After speaking about the sovereignty of God, they speak about the goodness, and then they speak about the circumstances. And notice in verses 29 and 30, they're essentially saying, Lord, just give us the strength to do what you've called us to do. We don't know what else to do. You have called us to speak. So in verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to what? To speak your word with great boldness. We don't, we don't know anything else but to do that. That is what you have called us to do. Stretch out your hand to heal 
and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. <clears throat> so to my, my people, the people at Grace on uh, this past Sunday, some people ask, what goes through a pastor's mind on Sunday night? What, what, is, the, what is the great challenge of a pastor's mind and, and some of the battles that take place? Or on a Monday morning, <clears throat> whenever it might be for you. And I said to them, I said, I don't think it's any different than what takes place in everybody's mind. There is a sense in which it's not unique. I said, the great battle for me is to know that at the end of the day, Jesus sits on the throne and he is moving despite what everything else may look like. It is an astounding thing to stand before people on a Sunday to know that for six days they have received, they, they have heard words that are against Christ, against God, <laughs> that stand in flagrant rebellion against the Holy One, and you're going to stand up and preach God's word? And we're going to say, the Lord can do amazing things because he is God. And then there's that Sarah moment when she laughs. And sometimes you just wait for people to break out in laughter. That's God after they've been immersed in the world for six days. But I have to believe through the foolishness of the preached word, God sits on the throne. And he is working in ways that I do not know in people's hearts and relationships with their children, in their workplaces, with the battle of sin that they deal with. And God is moving. And I'm not his counselor. And Satan's lie to me will be, well, you are rather pathetic. And I saw, you know, person in row, you know, seven, Seat B, not that we have that, but, you know, they were nodding off pretty good. <laughs> that, and, and then that other person who, who walked out. But God reigns. And he's good. And I'm not his counselor. And I have no power. But God, <clears throat> stretch out your hand. Heal, perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. If we go back to Second Chron, I, I wanted to go to Acts 6. I don't know if we have time. Remember that when Peter gets let out of prison? No, Acts 12. When he gets let out of prison <laughs> and they don't believe him, he's knocking on the door. I'm here. I'm out of prison. And uh, they go back, they have this big discussion. No, it can't be Peter's. It's got to be his angel or, or whatever. They open it up and he tells them the great story. <clears throat> they, were, they, they were in a prayer meeting and Peter still knocked on the door and they still didn't believe that God was doing great things. <clears throat> it's astounding, uh, the work of God. 
Are you not surprised that, that people just actually show up at church sometimes? I think sometimes for certain people in the church, that's the greatest act of faith all week. Because they come from such brokenness and such difficult circumstances. And they say, well, will God really speak to me again today? I really don't feel like being around people who are better than me. That's the way they think. Sometimes the greatest acts of God are done in the smallest. That moment of kindness between a couple. That's a great act of God. A father who's tired and still ministers to his child at the end of the day doesn't fly off the handle at them, but God is teaching in them patience where now they're speaking kindness and the gospel to their child. It's a great act of God. It's because he sits on the throne. If we go back to 2 Chronicles 20, verses 13 through 17. Jehoshaphat resolved to listen. I would think that if the enemy's close, uh, I would be busy organizing committees how to do ministry. Um, but the astounding act of faith is that they just stood before God. They didn't know what to do. And, and honestly, right? Like, what could they have done? You know, organize their small army into groups of 10. You take that part of the wall, you know, you go over there. What could they do? So they stood there and they waited. I think one of the hardest things sometimes as a pastor is to continue to trust God that when it seems like nothing is happening, God is still working. And, and sometimes we do this make work stuff in our churches just to appear like something is happening. If, if God is on, there's, there's always things that are being done by God. He is moving. doesn't mean that God's always moving the way we want him to move or in the places that we may want him to move. But in his greatness, he is moving. So they stood and they resolved to listen. And this is what, uh, <clears throat> this is what the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. This is what he said. Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. What is the Lord going to say? What would, what would you expect the Lord to say to you? And, you know, if you're going back and it's going to be difficult circumstances and you're trembling and you're, you're not looking forward to some of those things that need to be, that need to be done. Or you just, you came to this conference and you were tired and you were already discouraged and you've enjoyed the word and you've been ministered to and it's like, I don't want to leave this place. I, I could stay here for another few days. And sometimes I think when we expect to hear the word of the Lord, it's almost like we expect God to say, let's go. Come on, things to be done. Move it. Be a man or woman of courage. What is wrong with you? But this is what God says. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Absolutely astounding. Because what did he know about Jehoshaphat? He knew Jehoshaphat was these two things. He was afraid and he was discouraged. 
He didn't want this battle. He didn't choose this battle. He didn't choose this vast army to come and attack him. How often in our preaching do we say to our people and recognize that they come in filled with fears and filled with discouragement and bring to them the word of God that says, listen, you don't need to be afraid and you don't need to be discouraged. I have found in my years of ministry that one of the greatest needs in my congregation is for the people of God to be encouraged. Hands down. There is so much that will discourage them. And grace is so encouraging. I found as a parent, one of the greatest needs for my children is encouragement. I never thought about that when, when my kids were young. But do you know how the world speaks against them? I have a daughter. You know what the world tells my daughter these days? How much opposition is against godly young women? You have to be this way. You have to do these things. So often my daughter just needs to be told. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Now somebody might come up and say, well, how can you say that? Well, this is what he says. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. It's almost like God saying, there it is. It's big. It's vast. You have, humanly speaking, you have every reason to be afraid, but don't be afraid. Why? For the battle is not yours, but God's. How do you, how do you preach? How do you pastor? How do you father? How do you mother? How do you live as a teenager if the battle is not God's? The beauty of preaching the sovereignty of God is all I need to do is stand up and be faithful, which we'll see next session is hugely challenging enough. I just need to be faithful. This battle is not mine. One of the greatest challenges in counseling is just simply saying the word of God, not knowing how the word of God is going to work out in their life, but knowing that the word of God lives and is true, and if you speak it, then God will take care of it. The battle's not mine. I don't have to convince people. I don't, have to, I don't have to wrestle with people in the sense where if, if I didn't say it the right way or eloquently enough or read the right books or say the right phrases, then somehow they're not in the kingdom because of what I haven't said. It's God's battle. I don't need to save marriages. That's, that's, that's God's work. And if God sits on the throne and he looks down and he says, oh, that army just with his pinky, done. Oh, it's nothing. It's nothing for God to take that marriage or that heart and the work of Jesus Christ and do amazing things. This battle is not ours. Verse 16, God's plan. Tomorrow, you're going to march down. There will be climbing up, passes is. You'll find them at the end of the gorge. Verse 17, you will not have to fight this battle. I wonder how many, we'll get the, I wonder how many battles we have not had to fight simply because God has taken care of it for us. What does he say? Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. It, I trust that will be a word of encouragement to you in your ministry. It, 
if you're discouraged or overwhelmed, God sometimes just calls us to go and say, you just, you just need to stand and stand there. Stand your post. Get back up Sunday morning, preach the word. Sunday night, preach the word. Love your people. The battle's not yours, it's the Lord's. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Why? Because Jesus is raised from the dead. And he says it again at the end of verse uh, 17. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I love, I love that he says it twice. <laughs> it's almost like, okay, I'm beginning to see it just a little bit. And then God repeats it. In other words, Jehoshaphat was really afraid. He, he was really discouraged. So he says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Just as verse 12 and 13 were very powerful verses, I think verse 17 is such a powerful verse, especially for those who are afraid and discouraged. One of the hardest things sometimes in people's life is to go out and face them tomorrow. Do you ever have that in your counseling where people are, you know, they just want to run away? They just want to leave? And, and you bring the word of God before them and you essentially say to them, you know, go out and face that again tomorrow. But this, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Because I want to remind you that the battle isn't yours, it's, it's God's. And he'll look after you. And the Lord will be with you. Turn with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. We looked at these already. I just want to, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He reigns. He sits on the throne. Therefore, what? Go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Why can we go? Why can we baptize? Why can we teach? Why can we make disciples? Because God's with us to the very end of the age. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18 for a moment. Acts chapter 18. Verse 9, Paul gets discouraged. Or verse 7, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house. Titius Justus, the worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Acts chapter 18, verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Encouraging to know that Paul was afraid. Keep on speaking. God knew. Just don't be silent. Why? For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. It didn't look like much was happening. God was with Paul, or Peter, or Paul. Because <clears throat> I have many people in this city. 
Let's go back to 2 Chronicles 20. He's prayed, he's listened, and then in verses 18 through 22, he's resolved to worship. He's resolved to worship. Now remember, Jehoshaphat has no idea. What's, he, he, he's heard, all he has is the word of God. He heard, he's heard the word of God. He says, the battle's not yours, this is what's going to happen. You're going to um, take up your position, stand firm, see the deliverance of the Lord. Verse 18, this is what Jehoshaphat does. He bowed his face to the ground, and all the people of Jerusalem fell down to worship the Lord. And then in verse 19, the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord with a very loud voice. They have the word of God. Verse 20, early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. If you are looking at this circumstance from a human perspective, it doesn't look very loving. It doesn't look like the love of God is enduring forever. It looks like this small group that's going to be surrounded by this vast army and is about to be annihilated. And, all, and, 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 and you, you go to them and you say, well, why are you singing? Because I've heard the word of God. And he's told me this is not my battle. And I know that he sits on the throne. And I know that he's called me to go and stand firm. And not to be afraid and not to be discouraged because the Lord is with me. Getting through our circumstances is not just getting by. Getting through our circumstances is with a heart of worship where we're able to enter into a very difficult circumstance and say, I am giving thanks to God because despite everything about these circumstances, I know this one thing to be true. His love endures forever. He has loved me in eternity past. He has loved me now, and he will continue to love me. And whatever takes place, the love of God will never leave me. This, this is such powerful doctrine lived out. I, rem I remember early on, there was a person who went through very, very dark moments in her life. In fact, she was, she was in a hospital for a while. Such were the darkness of her thoughts. And as she was coming out of it by God's grace, she said, these two truths held me. She said, God is sovereign and God is good. He's sovereign and the darkness will not overwhelm me. He is good. His love never left me. Isn't that powerful? In the heart of darkness, it's the sovereignty and the goodness of God that held her. Whatever may take place, I know that 
even though I'm surrounded by a vast, imminent, alarming danger, God is vast. God is imminent. And if I can say it like this, God is far more dangerous. It is, it is, a, it is a greater thing to fear God than to fear any man. I think that's the life of a believer. God calls us to do greater things than we often are capable of doing. He just will. God calls you to do great things, not because you're great, but because he's great. Noah had to build an ark. Imagine that. Just that. In the midst of all this opposition, you are building an ark, Noah? (laughs) There? Really? And all this life is around him? Abraham, the pilgrim, David, Goliath, Esther, Haman, David, and the lions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the disciples and the nations. Your marriage, your children, your church, your culture. But the refrain from the believer's life is, I'm going to give thanks to the Lord because his love endures forever. That leads us to uh, verses 22 through 30. And this is the end of the story. And it's gruesome, but <laughs> it's such an awesome story. I, this is, he not, he not only prayed and uh, uh, he not only listened, he not only worshiped, but Jehoshaphat finally, and I, I think sometimes this is missing, but uh, Jehoshaphat resolved to enjoy. I think sometimes if we're struggling in ministry, it's because we've lost the enjoyment of our great God. It, it's, it's become about issues. Or it's become about we're carrying people's problems instead of this battle belongs to the Lord. The opposite of sometimes the pain of ministry is not the removal from ministry, but to be able to go into the day and say, I'm going to give thanks to God because I know this to be true. His love endures forever. So they're singing. (laughs) They're, They're singing. And verse 22, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. (laughs) They're singing, they're praising, and as they get over the mountain, in verse 24, when the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing because, I mean, that's just a brutal scene. But the sovereignty of God. This group attacks this group. This group watches. This group wins. And then they attack one another. So that by the time the Israelites who are singing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever, look over this vast army. The battle is the Lord's. They're dead. So what do they do? So 
Verse 25, Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value. (laughs) Instead of having to fight, they fought themselves, and they go over and they plunder. Oh, that looks good. I could use a new sword. My armor's a little rusty. That's about my size. I'm going to take his armor. Uh, there's some valuables, a little low, uh, you know, on the bank account. I'm just going to, you know, take some. We're going to plunder. And then in the, in the middle of verse 25, there was so much plunder that it took them three days to collect it. The goodness of God was so overwhelming. It took three days for them to plunder. Not only were they not defeated, not only did they not have to fight the battle, it was God's battle, but they ended up plundering for three days. On the fourth day, verse 26, they assembled in the valley of Berakah, where they praised the Lord. This is why it is called the valley of Berakah to this day. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem, what? Returned joyfully to Jerusalem. For the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and trumpets. The fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. That is our God. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. What do we find? Jesus Christ raised from the dead? Conquered sin. And we plunder the love of God that is lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. I give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Turn with me to Psalm 23. Just close with these few thoughts. Do you know that every day We plunder the goodness of God, the riches of Christ's blessing at the cross. Psalm 23 is one of those very familiar psalms. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Love verse 5. You prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. There's a table right there in the middle. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The abundant riches found in the midst of the enemy. There's this banquet table of God's goodness so that we're able to stand before our people and say whatever the circumstances might be give thanks to the Lord his love endures forever turn with me finally to Ephesians chapter 3 I do premarital counseling I I take them through the book of Ephesians and we begin with the gospel and uh, I love it because it begins with God's unconditional love. It begins with predestination, the power of the Holy Spirit, the work of Christ, uniting Jew and Gentile together. And then at the end, I say to them, we have not understood the gospel. 
unless we have understood in part the prayer that Paul gives. For this reason, in verse 14, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Not through what's seen, but through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I have not understood the gospel unless I begin, begun to understand in part the depth of love that God has for me in Jesus Christ. And the beauty about the unconditional love of God is you say to a couple who's about to be married, your love is not based on conditional love. It's not based on whether you're having a good hair day or not. It is unconditional love. And if at the end of your marriage, your wife does not know a depth of love from you, then you have not experienced marriage. How at the end of your marriage, your wife will be able to say, I have been loved richly. Are you joyful? Do you bring joy to the church? There's darkness that's all around us, but there's joy in Christ. And the victory is ours in him. And we have been richly loved. In fact, I cannot plumb the depths of God's love. So that I'm able to say to the people, and I'm able to say to my own heart on a Sunday night or whenever it might be, I'm going to give thanks to God. His love endures forever. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. 